So if you were here last week, we looked at, I think, one of the most important studies that I've, I have done um, in the study of the work of Christ. Uh, and that study is how Jesus Christ fulfills the law for us. It's something that we sing, it's something that we read, it's something that we all hear about, right? Jesus was made under the law, uh, and in doing so, he releases us from under the curse of the law. You want to turn? I'm going to push this back a little bit. Good, that's good. <clears throat> so, um, where was I? The law. Is anyone even listening? <laughs> the law, right, in Christ... Um, okay, yes, uh, that's one of the most important studies in all of theology, um, not only knowing us, not only knowing from a, a theological standpoint, but also from a practical standpoint, right? Um, because there's much implications uh, that go along with this one answer of, or the question of, uh, Christ and his relationship with the law. If Christ fulfilled the moral law on our behalf, then we're no longer bound to the moral law, as some might say. Uh, which is not true because the moral law is universally binding on all people. So that can't be true, right? Um, but what theologians have said is Jesus Christ fulfills the moral law because it was that law that was written on the heart of Adam, and it is that law as well as positive laws, but namely the moral law is what Adam disobeyed in the garden, Right? The law that was written on his heart, the law that was given on, Mount, given on Mount Sinai is the same law that was given on or that was written on the heart of Adam that's written on all of our hearts. So what Christ does is he does what Adam could not do, what Adam should have done, and that is he obeys the moral law. And we're going to talk more about that. But when theologians speak of Christ being made under the law, to release us from under the condemnation of the law, they're, they're, they speak to more than just the moral law. Okay, So when we say Christ uh, fulfilled the law for us, oh, he did fulfill the moral law for us, but theologians also speak of other laws that Christ fulfilled for us. There's other things embedded in the law that Jesus Christ did for us, which, which is great, right? Us Christians, we want to know, okay, well, what else has Jesus Christ freedom freed us from, right? And this evening, we want to consider some of those other things uh, that Christ has done for us. And this is all under the banner of the obedience of Christ, right? We're still learning about the active obedience of Christ. And mainly what that means is in, uh, Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience that earns for us a right standing before God. Right? So we are saved both by the life of Christ, but also by the death of Christ. That's important for us to, to understand when we, are, uh, when we think about our Savior, but also when we are sharing the gospel with unbelievers. Right? That Jesus not only died for you, but he lived a life for you right? that you could never live. Um, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, a classic text when we speak about the obedience of Christ says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We all heard of this text before, right? Jesus Christ uh, was born under the law. Now, what does the Apostle Paul mean when 
He says, born under the law. Is he merely talking about the moral law that Jesus Christ was born under? Well, John Gill has a wonderful commentary uh, on what it means to be born under the law. Here what he says. Under the civil and judicial law as a Jew, to which he was subject, paying tribute to the collectors of it, and which was necessary... It might have appeared he sprung from that nation to whom he was promised that, and, that he might be a, and that he might come before the civil government of that people was at an end and to teach us subjection to the civil magistrate. And as a son of Abraham, he was made under the ceremonial law, was circumcised the eighth day, kept the several feasts of tabernacles, Passover, and which was proper since he was the principal end of it in whom it centers, and for whose sake it was made, and that he might completely fulfill it, and by doing put, a, uh, put it to death. And he was made under the moral law, both as a man and surety of his people. And he was subject to all the precepts of it, and bore the penalty of it, death, in their room instead, and thereby fulfilled it, and delivered them from its curse and condemnation. What John Gill is saying is, when Paul says that this one, this son who came from God was born under the law, it's not merely the moral law that Paul is speaking of. But Paul is speaking of the ceremonial and the judicial or civil law. And you're going to be hearing me say those words interchangeably, judicial and civil. Okay? What Paul or what... what John Gill is getting at is what theologians call the threefold use of the law, or nah, the threefold division of the law. There is a threefold use of the law, but what John Gill is speaking of is, is threefold division of the law. Okay? Now, what is the threefold division of the law? Francis Chiriton sums this up well. He says, The law given by Moses is usually distinguished into three species. Moral, ceremonial, and civil. Moral, treating of morals or of the perpetuity duties of, uh, towards God and our neighbor. Ceremonial, of the ceremonies or rites about the sacred things to be observed under the Old Testament. And civil, constituting the civil government of an Israelite people. Chariton is correct. Historically, theologians have divided the law into three parts into three sections, if you will. The moral law being one, the ceremonial law, and the civil or judicial law. Okay? Now, what do these three divisions mean? If you're taking notes, you can write moral law down. What is the moral law? And we looked at the moral law last week, if you were here, but the moral law is best summed up in the Ten Commandments. The moral law is best summed up in the Ten Commandments. Um, and last week, if you were here, there are many things we learned about the moral law, did we not? First, the moral law is a reflection of the righteous and holy character of God. That's the one thing we are to get down when we consider the Ten Commandments. It is a reflection of who God is. Secondly, the moral law is what was written on the heart of Adam in the garden. Another thing that's crucial to understand. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, was written on the heart of Adam in the garden. 
along with positive laws, such as not eating from certain trees, Adam was to obey the moral law in order to merit eternal life. And thirdly, the moral law, since it is written on the heart of Adam, is written on our hearts. Since Adam was obligated, because he is a creature, and God is the creator, Adam is obligated to obey God. And how does Adam, Adam obey God? Well, he obeys God according to the law of God. Right? Adam does not obey God uh, in the way that he wants to obey God. He obeys God in the way that God has commanded him to obey. One helpful church father, Tertullian, says, Before the law of Moses, written in stone tablets, I can contend that there was a law unwritten, which was habitually understood naturally, and by the fathers was habitually kept. A wonderful quote by this early church father, speaking to the fact that before the, the law, the Ten Commandments was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, that there was a law, an unwritten written law that was kept. And it was written on the heart of Adam. The second division of the law is called the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law can be placed in the category of positive law. So if you're writing ceremonial law down, you can put positive law. It's a positive law. And remember what positive laws are, are those laws that are given for a specific time, specific place, and for a particular people. That's what positive laws are. They are laws that are added to the natural or Ten Commandments. They are not moral in and of themselves because one day they are going to be done with. Remember, one example of a positive law is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not universally binding on everyone. Not everyone is obligated to partake of the Lord's Supper. One day the Lord's Supper will cease. We will not do the Lord's Supper here, right? So the Lord's Supper, as well as baptism, is a positive law. Now, uh, let me give you a formal definition. The ceremonial laws are those laws which pertain to the ordinances of the Old Covenant. And these ordinances are the priesthood, the various feasts, Holy days, animal sacrifices, circumcision, the temple economy. So when we think of holy days, when we think of the various feasts in the Old Testament, many of you have read about them, or even circumcision, those ordinances fall under the category of ceremonial laws. Those are ceremonial laws, okay? It's important for us to understand. Now, why were these ceremonial laws given to Israel? Not all the other surrounding nations, right? They weren't given to the Assyrians or Babylonians, but they were given strictly to Israel. Why Israel? Well, friends, the answer is twofold. First, these laws were given to God's people in the Old Testament to instruct them in the things of the Lord. It was to teach them how to worship God. In fact, I would argue that because we are created in the image of God, not only are we obligated to obey God, but we are obligated to worship God because he is the creator and we are the creature. All creatures owe worship to God. 
And the ceremonial law was given to Israel primarily, or not primarily, but one of the reasons is because God wanted them to worship him in the right way, approach him in a correct way. And that's what the ceremonial laws did. It taught Israel how to approach God in worship. But secondly, and I guess primarily, the ceremonial laws pointed the people of Israel to the Messiah. The ceremonial laws pointed the people of Israel to the Messiah. It pointed them to Jesus Christ. These laws were what's called types and shadows. And what that simply means is they pointed to something greater than itself. So the sacrificial system, right? When, when someone is bringing a, a ram or a goat to, to be sacrificed, that ram or goat, that animal, is pointing to someone far greater than itself that can take away sins, not temporary, but for eternal eternity. These were laws were types and shadows that taught Israel that there must be a mediator and a blood sacrifice for the remission of sins and that this would be fulfilled in future times after it has been abrogated, afterwards abrogated. And when we say abrogated, that these laws one day, these ceremonial laws, this circumcision, sacrifice, all these things, holy days, when we say abrogated, what I mean by that is they are going to be done away with. I love the, the Reformed scholastics. They speak of the, the ceremonial law as being dead. They die in Christ, right? Um, at the coming of Christ, these ordinances, the ceremonial law, were done away with because there was no use for them. There's no use for bringing sacrifices to the temple because Jesus Christ has came, Right? Uh, there's no uses for all these feasts and holy days because they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Okay? Again, these laws were types and shadows that pointed to someone better than itself. Okay? Our Confession of Faith in chapter 19, paragraph 3, speaks of this. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, refiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all with ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation, Reformation being when Jesus Christ came, not the Reformation that Martin Luther started, uh, and are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, the only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father and that and abrogated and taken away. So in summary, the, the ceremonial law are those laws that Israel was to obey as long as they were a nation under God's supervision. There were these laws that, God, that, they were, that Israel was to obey, these positive laws that weren't meant to last forever. Right? They, they, they are one day will be abrogated by the coming of Christ. Um, And the purpose of this law was twofold, to purify the people and to teach them true religion and to point to them the Messiah. I think that's a good summary of the main two main reasons why the ceremonial law was given to teach Israel true religion and what true devotion to God looks like, what true worship to God looks like. 
but also to point them to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And lastly, we have the civil or judicial law. And these civil or judicial laws are those laws which rule the people of Israel as a political body. In other words, the civil laws or the judicial laws is the civil application of moral principles. It's the civil application of moral principles. Chapter 19, paragraph 4 of our confession says, To them also he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people. That's, that's, that statement there is one of the most important statements in our confession of faith. Not obligating any now, but virtue of that institution, their genuine equity only being of moral use. So these civil laws, they regulated the life of Israel as a political body. The civil laws was to set Israel apart from all other nations and to show that they and they alone were governed by the hand of God. Now, in light of knowing what the ceremonial and civil laws are, the question that arises is twofold. First, why did Jesus have to obey the ceremonial and civil law? Why did Jesus have to obey the ceremonial and civil law? And second, what happened to these laws? What happened to the ceremonial and civil law? Well, like we noted last week, Jesus, because he was the second person of the Trinity who assumed a true human nature, he was not bound or obligated to obey the law, moral, ceremonial, or judicial. Because he was God, he was not bound to keep the law, like we are bound to keep the law. The obligation of Christ's law-keeping of the moral law finds its origins not in the fact that he's a human, but finds its origins in the covenant of redemption. And we learned a little bit about that last week. The Father, in times eternal, laid upon his Son certain conditions in order that the triune God may be glorified through the redemption of a particular people. There were certain things that the Father gave to the Son, and if the Son did them, then he would be rewarded. And one of those things or conditions that was given from the Father to the Son was this obligation to obey and fulfill the moral law of God. Because it is the moral law of God, like I said in the opening, that Adam failed to keep. It is the moral law that we are all bound to, that we cannot fulfill in and of ourselves. Essentially, what Christ was to do was he was to undo what Adam had done. And he was to do so by obedience. But that's in regard to the moral law. The Father gave to the Son the moral law and said, and this is not what he said, but, you know, and said, do this and live. Essentially what God told Adam in the garden. If you obey this, as well as other things, become incarnate, suffer for the, on the behalf of your people, die, then you get these rewards. But what about the ceremonial and civil law? Were the ceremonial and civil laws, were they also in the covenant of redemption? 
Were they also in that agreement between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And why? Why did Jesus Christ have to obey the ceremonial and civil law? He had to obey the moral law because that is what was given to him in the covenant of redemption. But what about the ceremonial and civil law? Well, we can say yes and no, that the ceremonial and civil law, they weren't given to Christ at the covenant of redemption. But they, but they were so in the sense of because he was born a, a part of a certain ethnic group. When we consider why did Jesus have to obey the ceremonial and civil law, the question finds its answer in who Jesus was. Okay, So why did Jesus have to obey the ceremonial and civil law? It finds its origins not in the covenant of redemption, but mainly in who Jesus Christ was. Jesus was an Israelite who was born under the conditions of the Mosaic law. And because he is an Israelite, he is obligated to keep the ceremonial and civil laws of the day. Jonathan Edwards says rightly and succinctly, Jesus obeyed all those laws that he was subject to as he was a Jew. Because he was a Jew, and being a Jew, he has to obey these laws. Similar to if you were in another country, right? If you're in this country, you have to obey these set of laws. Well, because Jesus was an Israelite, he had to obey the ceremonial and civil laws. He's born under the uh, conditions. He's born in the context of the Mosaic covenant or Mosaic law. Okay, I hope that's, uh, I hope you guys all, if you don't understand that, then talk to me after. Um, the second question, now what happened to these laws? What happened to these ceremonial and civil laws? Uh, none of us offer sacrifices today. Um, a lot of the civil laws that were given to Israel, uh, we don't uh, adhere to them. Well, like we have learned, the ceremonial and civil laws were positive laws, which means that they weren't meant to last forever. The ceremonial and civil laws weren't meant to last forever. The moral law is going to last forever. Forever, but not the ceremonial and civil laws. And we see the ceremonial and civil laws finding its termination in the coming of Jesus Christ. And we could say that, and I, and I read this, um, I believe it's in uh, Some Dead Guy, that the, the ceremonial and civil law, it, when Jesus comes, it, it starts to die a slow death and then disappears at the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Right? So we ought to think that as soon as the eternal son took on flesh and then Mary uh, uh, gave birth to Jesus, as soon as Jesus was born, the ceremonial and civil laws were done. No. But it, it was dying a slow, agonizing death because Jesus was fulfilling every single jot and tittle of the law. Okay? The Apostle Paul speaks of the termination of the ceremonial law in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or, or with regard to a festival, or, or a new morn, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Right? These things um, were just shadows of Jesus Christ who was to come. And don't get hung up on the word Sabbath there. Uh, and if you want more clarification on that, talk to Pastor Antonio. Uh, Paul also speaks of the termination of the civil law 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandment, expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. What Paul is saying is those things that formerly divided Jew and non-Jew has been abolished in Jesus Christ. That there is neither Jew nor Greek, but we are all one in Jesus Christ. And that's what the civil laws or the judicial laws did in the, in the, in the, in the time. It, it divided uh, nations from, from other nations, namely Israel from the surrounding nations. But that dividing wall is no longer there. Jesus Christ, we are all one in Jesus Christ. So these ceremonial and civil laws are no longer binding. Why? Because, simple answer, they've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. No longer ceremonial laws, no longer civil laws, because they're fulfilled in Christ. And friends, this is so important for us to understand in our day and age. Because there are some Christians who believe that the civil laws that govern Israel ought to be reinforced in government today. Not only the laws, but also the penalties thereof. And friends, not only is that biblically and theologically wrong, but also historically wrong as well. Modern day governments should not run themselves according to the principles that were given to Old Testament Israel because those principles were only for Old Testament Israel. Why shouldn't we uh, follow the civil laws of Old Testament Israel? Because they were for only Old Testament Israel. And when that nation was no more than the laws went with that nation, as our confession says, the nation passed away and so did the laws that governed them passed away. There are also some Christians who believe that some of the feasts or holy days should still be observed in our current day. You might know many people like that, that they still celebrate the Day of Atonement, or they don't eat pork, or they don't, they don't uh, do a lot of uh, the things that an Israelite did in the Old Covenant. And friends, not only is that unbiblical, just unbiblical. <laughs> but it does a disgrace to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Simple as that. The feasts, holy days, circumcision, the sacrifices, all those things pointed to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And if you're still holding on to those things, then you're holding on to empty shells. You're holding on to shadows. When the substance has come, it's similar to if you... Uh, are walking and you see your wife or whoever and there's her shadow right there and you come up to her shadow and you try to embrace the shadow but the substance is here though so why would i embrace the shadow or why would i you know marry the picture when my wife is in the other room you know it doesn't make any sense why would i talk to this picture or anything like that uh when the person has who the picture is pointing towards is here and I would say we are not to uh, come under this notion that the Old Testament uh, ceremonial laws are still abiding today because Jesus Christ has done away with the ceremonial and civil laws. Wilhelm Brockle has a wonderful quote. He says this, Immediately upon Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, the ceremonies, the ceremonies had completely lost their efficacy. 
And from that very moment, it was sin to use them in a Jewish manner. And that is being shadows of the future Messiah. It is sin, a great sin, to still hold on to those Jewish feasts um, while the substance Christ has come. Now, uh, before we close, I want us to see how Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law. Jesus fulfills the civil law by merely coming into existence, we would say, right? He is what we call true Israel, okay? Uh, we will learn about that eventually in our study through Christology. But the ceremonial law, and what I want us to consider is I had a bunch of laws that we were just going to run down the list and see how Jesus fulfills all these ceremonial laws, but it would have took forever. I want us to consider just one law, and that is the law of circumcision, and mainly because Brother Dustin brought it to my attention a long time ago. He said, what about circumcision in Christ? Is there any connection there? Which he probably already knew. But I want us to consider circumcision for a moment. And how does Jesus Christ fulfill the ceremonial law of circumcision? In a nutshell, circumcision was a sign that, um, was a sign that one was covenantly joined to God's people and was committed to keep the whole law. It marked out Abraham's physical offspring. Every male after the eighth day being born was to be circumcised. We read in Luke 2, verse 21, Christ as a baby was circumcised. He fulfills this ceremonial law. It reads, and at the eighth, end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. And given the name by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. One theologian says Christ took the sign to himself as a boy to fulfill the demands of the law and to have a constant reminder that he was the one who would bear the curse of the law for his people. The circumcision of Jesus pointed to the fact that he was the one, the only one, who would put an end to the law of circumcision. For not only will he be circumcised according to the law, but he will be circumcised for the forgiveness of sins. St. Paul brings this out in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's not talking about the circumcision of Christ when he was a baby. He's talking about a specific time when Jesus Christ was circumcised. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through faith in the powerful working of God and raised him from the dead. Circumcision, of course, is that act of the cutting of the foreskin of the male child. Very bloody act. What Paul is saying in Colossians is Jesus was cut off because of the transgressions of his people. Because of the sins of his people, Jesus underwent a bloody circumcision. In other words, in his bloody, circum in his bloody death, Christ on the cross underwent the ultimate circumcision. Circumcision in the Old Testament pointed forward to Christ's circumcision on the cross. As the prophet Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
He goes on and says, he was cut off. Notice the language there. What happens in circumcision? There's a cutting off. The prophet Isaiah said he was cut off uh, out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Our Lord was circumcised on the cross so that we might have our heart circumcised. That is why Christ underwent this bloody circumcision, so that we might have our hearts circumcised without hands. One theologian says, when Christ was cut off in bloody judgment under the wrath of God, he was, pointing, uh, he was providing all that was necessary for the cutting away of guilt, corruption, and the power of sin. Circumcision is a cutting, cutting off. It's a recognition that this child is sinful. Now, why is it on um, a child's private part? Some say uh, generation. Because it is on the account of generation that that child is a sinner. Because we are all sinners by descending from Adam. Right? Our Savior's bloody circumcision brought about the circumcision made without hands in the hearts of his people. So why no more circumcision? Well, if you want to do it, you can to your baby. But why is it not required? Because Christ underwent a circumcision on the cross. My friends, I think when we think about circumcision that, uh, and Christ fulfilling this ceremonial law, it, it really encapsulates a life lived of obedience, not to just the moral law, but also to those, those, those laws that Christ uh, lived under as an Israelite. I think there's a lot of things we can say in, in light of that, a lot of practical things. We are Americans. And we are bound to keep the laws in our land today if, insofar as, as they, are, they are not um, violating uh, God's moral law. But also what I would say is, think about the Savior that we have. And the conditions that our Christ was born under. He was, had to obey the moral law. On top of that, the ceremonial law. On top of that, the civil law. And he did so perfectly. In order that we might have a right standing before God. He did so under all these uh, law conditions. But also in the context of a sinful world. Unlike Adam, Adam had to obey positive and moral laws, but he did so in a garden. Jesus Christ obeyed the moral and ceremonial, but all as well as the civil law under the conditions of sinful flesh. There's people around him that I'm sure uh, tempted him every single day. But our Lord never gave in, uh, for he is impeccable. Um, so friends, that is how Jesus Christ uh, fulfills the ceremonial and civil law on our behalf. And thank God that he did. And when we consider the Lord's Supper this evening, uh, we are to remember that the bread represents the perfect life that Jesus lived for us. And the cup that we drink represents the perfect death that Christ offered up on our behalf. And so friends, let's pray. Uh, let's ask that our Lord be with us as we dine with him and with fellowship with our Christ.